Hello. Oh, hi, Merlin. How are you? I'm very good. You seem uh, at peace. Well, there's a new fart in the app called Skype. Oh, yeah? What is it doing? You should be aware of. I have verified this with some other people. For some reason, um, uh, this is not interesting. But uh, for some reason, recently, Call Recorder misses the first at least one or two seconds. Of a oh, yeah. No, it's been doing that for a long time because when, when you send me your end, it always is missing your hello. So I have to grab the hello from the end that I record from you and then, uh, and then drop it onto the – yeah. Three, two, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it all in. Yeah. Uh, but it's very upsetting for people who listen to the Roderick on the Line podcast because we have a certain way that the show usually begins, and it's been uh, it's it seemed terse because it wasn't uh, right, before. right, right. You're going to have to like count them in now or something. Yeah, well, you know, whatever's in the show is in the show. That's that's <laughs> that's, what he that's said. our blessing and our curse, Dan. Yeah. Did you toot this out? Uh, I probably can do. I could do that. We toot it a, out, and I'll, don't I'll even tell need the a nice reason. People. Don't even except for golfers okay i'm gonna close that tab all right done lots of i watched that uh pretty pretty uh video a few times and showed it to my showed it to my son (laughs) and he liked it um the 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 one that i had sent you and we watched yeah the one that we watched that was in the first you're like okay who's this who's this old guy right playing this really simple beat for six minutes and but like you get real into that groove well, he's he his his enthusiasm is contagious yes. for it. So that's but, but that's then, what sells it. I mean, like it's really enjoyable to me. That's my ASMR, like just watching Pretty Pretty go. ASMR. <laughs> but then he gets to uh, I don't know the last like what three minutes where he starts explaining. I mean, I've had music theory. I'm not super smart. I don't. St- I still don't completely understand how many things are going on in that beat. Where it, it could be all of these different things. It could be double time. It could be half time. It could be twelve. It could be eight. It could be all these different things. But like, but then you go and you listen to um, what's the song? Do, 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 you know that one song that uh, his, the his, the uh, his yeah his, his the Steely Dan song yeah yeah what's the song I'm thinking of? What am I thinking of? Uh, it's I not mean, Peg. Not, it's Peg. not Peg. Peg is your it's, favorite one. Do, 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 do. Yeah. He's killing time searching for Asia. <laughs> I like I like your version. I know the song you mean. I can't remember the name. It's a song that goes like this. It's got the one part. Is it Josie? Josie comes Is it on Gaucho? Might have been on Gaucho. Babylon Sisters. Take it. That's the song. Drum videos, man. Well, how so did you far, get? How a, did you find that one? Like, what what made you come to that one? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I sometimes go down a steely Dan hole. I have, I have a couple Twitter friends where, like, we can we'll be sitting around, you know, watching YouTube videos, and then we'll get into it and send each other videos. And um, it's you know, it's not. It's like liking Rush or something. It's nothing to be like proud of. But I really genuinely like Steely Dan, and I I really appreciate the um 
I mean, I, I really like the the musicians they get on there. I love the arrangements, and there's that series that you can still kind of find sometimes a little bit in parts on YouTube called Classic Albums, which I think John Roderick owns in its entirety on DVD. <laughs> but they'll do a real deep dive where they'll go into the studio with the musicians and often the producer, and they'll isolate the tracks like live in the studio. And the one for Asia is really good. I think it's it is Asia I'm thinking of, right? Yeah, not Gaucho. The one for Asia is really good because they do stuff like you can see Rick Murata doing those amazing hi hat parts and like how he did that, and the bass player explaining how he's able to get slapping on to the track, and but then also like all the times they would bring people in these like world class guitarists, jazz and fusion and rock guitarists to do these parts and then just not use their part. And they would like bring up just the solo to show you all the solos they didn't use. I don't know. I don't know how. I um but Do you think it's know. is it possible to to like both Steely Dan and Van Morrison? Is it possible to like Yeah, I think that's an easy one. You think yeah. so? Yeah. Do do you think there are some affinities that are not reconcilable absolutely yes one thousand percent and it's okay, not just in the others that, that might resonate with me pink floyd and led zeppelin you can't like both oh come on no. what kind of talk is that it's true you can you can listen to both you can enjoy it but you can't like you know what i'm saying you can't be like a fan of both is this sort of like a the classic Beatles and the Stones kind of dichotomy like you can only really really like one yeah yeah i would say Beatles and stones are probably the most famous one Mm. Yeah, and I think that's probably accurate. I think you can only like Steely Dan if you're a male. I've met women who claim to like Steely Dan. I think they're fibbing. Yeah, it sounds like a... It's a real dude band. Yeah, it really is. They love their cocaine. But no, they um they had so many really, really good songs. You know what it was? I, I um I, I had this really good pal in high school. Um Long story short, uh, his his parents had gone to the college that I would eventually go to. He was the first child of an alumnus to attend our young college. But that didn't matter at the time. What mattered at the time was his mom and dad had this great record collection. So that's my second or third wave of really getting into the Beatles was having access to like Rubber Soul that we could just drop and play anytime. That's how I got into the Firesign Theater right. comedy group. Um, but then also Sam had a CD player before any of my other close friends. And one of his first CDs was, wasn't Decade. Decade is Neil Young. It's whatever, the Decade of Steely Dan, I think it's called. Okay. But it was one of the very first DDD. No, that can't be right. It wasn't, couldn't have been DDD because they were recording analog in the 70s. But it was this beautiful, like, best of Steely Dan that I really, like, cut my teeth on. I'd had some cassettes that I picked up used. But can you, can you I, explain DDD for the, the youth among uh, our audience? When the Philips compact disc standard came out in the consumer culture in the early 80s, um, they did this rating system where you could – could, uh, initially, you'd look at the back of the CD package and it would show you um, – the idea was that it would show you how it was recorded, how it was mastered – wait, how it was recorded, how it was mixed and how it was mastered, something like that. Or I and thought the last one was um, was the how it was produced, like digital meaning CD. I thought the, I think that you know I think you're right. So it must have been recorded. You so know, the first one was it was it recorded digitally or was analog? It recorded analog or digital? Right, and the second was one is it, like how it was mastered, mastered, right? Analog or digital, 
and then was it produced analog or digital? Well, obviously everybody gets a D. You, there's, there's a really, really interesting, mostly boring, but kind of interesting Wikipedia article about this, about some very odd anomalous like edge cases with this. But, um, it was a really big deal when you had like, um, the first like DDD, like it was, rec- I think I want to say that like, like Dire that, Straits. That could have been, I, that's the right I time feel like, period. I feel like the money for nothing CD. D, D, D. But that was like a big deal. If you could get the first one as a D and then get D's straight through, like that was straight something D's. special. That's the first time in your life you want straight That's D. Right. Um, brothers in arms. Oh, this is good. It's going to be one for the books. I can tell already. This is already a classic episode. <laughs> yeah, where I mean, we're, you can really kind of we're hot like already, you, you know. Got, you got Mastering. You got Steely Dan. <laughs> um, you got Skype. Yeah, let's see. Brothers in Arms is one of the first albums recorded. Uh, Brothers in Arms is one of the first albums recorded on a Sony 24-track digital tape machine. There you go. Digital. 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 Okay, Brothers in Arms is one of the first albums directed at the CD market and was a full direct or full digital recording DDD at a time when most popular music was recorded on analog equipment. So according to the Wikipedia... Great album. That that album was... So yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. You know Love me. I, I'm always I like the early stuff guy. But but that was a that was a good album. Love that staying album. power. Love that album. The man's that was a good too, time. the man's too big. The man's too strong. Hmm. Well, you know, and it was like music was starting to suck less. We we're coming kind of coming out of like a. I remember like there was mainstream music coming out after I right after I graduated from college. 85, 86, there was some mainstream music coming out that was like pretty darn good. You got your sledgehammer, you got your, you know, you got, you got the Paul Simon. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got Paul Simon, you got Graceland. Girl. Graceland. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what a, what an album. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh, codes. You got five types. You got AAA. It's all analog. AAD, analog tape, uh, analog mixing, digital mastering. Here's an interesting one. Digital tape, analog tape recorder for mixing and then digital mastering oh i will put this in notes dan if people wanted to learn all about the <laughs> all about the code, art of decoding the code the symbols uh, developed by the society of professional audio recording services spars if you want to learn more about the spars code where people find uh, show notes for episode ta 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 diggity three six eight of your back to work program five by five dot tv slash b as in brothers two is the number w as in women slash three six eight B's and Brothers, two is in the number, W as in arms. Yes. What's the big man, tall man, little man, thief? What, what'd you say? Big man's the tall man? What was, what was that line you The quoted? man's too big, the man's, man's too, too big. strong. Man's too big, man's too strong. Now, what, what track is that from? Do you remember? Uh, let's see. Um, it's okay. It's okay. I can look it up on uh, No, on the, the, the name of the song is The Man's Too Strong. I'm trying to remember what number man's the track was. I think it could be the man's second to last track or the last track. Strong. Yeah. But that also was the time we we're all getting. Uh, I'll speak for myself. I'm making an I statement. I was getting pretty sick of Sting at that point. Was you this know? Dream of the Blue Turtles time period? It was around Dream of the Blue okay. Turtles time. He was doing a lot of interviews. <laughs> yeah, he did. I wanna. He did. He did. Yeah, he was. Business. Yeah, he he made his way into uh, yeah in Dire Straits. And also, don't at me. Uh, not a huge fan of Synchronicity. My least favorite Police album. Really, that was, what, 1983. Yes, yes, yes. I like uh, Ghost really? in the Machine. Well, I mean, the there world. isn't there for the record. There isn't a bad Police album. There were my not favorite. A, you bands. know, it's really true. There is not a bad Police. There's something to love about the rawness. Yeah. Of uh, the early Atlantis stuff. Atlantis de Atlantis de Moore, Regatta de Blanc. They're starting to like tweak it up a little bit. You get Zenyatta and Dada. What's the one? 
The Sinyano Mandata right before Ghost in the Machine? What am I forgetting? The police. Boy, we're really hitting. This is a four-quadrant episode. But think about what's on synchronicity, okay? You've mm. got Every Breath You Take, King of Pain, <sighs> uh, Murder by Numbers, Wrapped Around Your Finger. These are some of their biggest songs, their best songs. Mm. You know well, what? I think it was too commercial right. for you. And I think you had to, to take a step back from it I, because too many people were listening to it. You think I was in too deep. I was in too deep. It made them uncooled because people liked them at this point. And you're, you're saying you're saying that's how I am. I'm, I'm the, saying I'm saying if if somebody likes something too much, yes, true fans are often put off. Seen the by Wire. It. You should really see the Wire. It's really good. <laughs> My brother-in-law was a uh, very much into, uh, you know, like uh, I guess you would call it like '80s, ni- '90s punk music and like uh really he like loved green day until they like signed and then he's like oh they're they're the worst now i can't listen to them anymore love nirvana till they signed oh i can't listen to nirvana anymore and you know i think this is what i I think the police were they were uh you know firing on all the cylinders right there and like we're doing today and and you're like i gotta get out miss gradenko you ever heard that it's horrible song i'm out okay Uh, it's a theory okay let me take you back (laughs) Let me take you back. You got yeah, October 2nd, 1981. All right. I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> I remember it well. Um, October 2nd, 1981. You get an album, little album, little album you might have heard of called Ghost in the Machine. Yeah. You open up with Spirits in the Material World. Great song. Boom. You go into every little thing she does is magic. One of the best all-time songs. Number three, Invisible Sun. There has to be an invisible. You go into Hungry for You. It's got a sax on it. I think probably played by that dingling sting. Forgivable. Uh, Demolition Man. Too much information. Rehumanize yourself. One world, not three. Oh, Mega Man. Secret Journey. Darkness. All of that on one album. You know, I'll tell you something. I, I In general, I like that album, but I don't think, I think that's, with the exception of every little thing she does is, is magic. The, probably yeah. my least favorite police album. Okay, in that case, let me take you back to a previous October. Let's go back to October 3rd, 1980. Okay. You start out with a little jam you might have heard of called Don't Stand So Close yeah, To Me. Yeah, great, great, great song. Driven to Tears. BW, When the World Is Running Down, You Make the Best of What's Still Around. Canary in a Coal Moin. Voices inside my head. Bombs away. Behind my camel, man in a suitcase, shadows in the rain, the other way of stopping. Jiminy Christmas. Now, let me take you forward to a little year called October 2nd, 1981. Uh-huh. So you're familiar with the cover? Of I'm Ghost familiar with the year of October second, nineteen eighty one. I remember it well. <laughs> you looking at that cover, the Ghost in the Machine? Yeah. You know, there's people still don't see the faces. You're supposed to see the faces in that, and uh, three faces. There, the there was stink. a lot of controversy around what did it mean? What what is it supposed to is be? It racist? Right? Is it racist? Is it a symbol? Yeah. If you hold it sideways, does it spell out the devil or something? But if I think you play it, it backwards. I think yep. it's just supposed to be the three of the band members. Yeah. yeah. Because Sting had the little spiky... He had the spikies. Yeah. Don't ask your friend's alcoholic mother to give you that haircut. That's just a piece of advice. That's <laughs> did a piece that, of advice did that happen? Could happen. <laughs> did, did, didn't look like Sting. Didn't no. even look like the album cover. I didn't even look like an LED. Sting made the sort of male pattern baldness very attractive, and I feel like he yes. paved the way for a Captain oh, Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, I think we can stipulate. It's a great time for men... In that you can now shave your head. Yeah. It's like, it's so cool that we can just get past all of that nonsense. You can just shave your head. But you know, he did, he did look awful good with a receding hairline. Yeah, he looked good. 
But, you know, I think also, like, you know, you go through these waves. I got cemented. I, I feel like I really imprinted on Sting. Uh-huh. I, I liked, <laughs> Around the I Dune the- time period, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I will kill him! I will kill him! <laughs> Can I show that to my kid? We're not up to that yet, are we? Uh, no, you, you totally. You get, you, there's a couple scenes that are a little like when Baron Harkonnen like sucks sucks the boy. Yeah, like, you don't want that. You don't want that, and you don't want the 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 whole concept of the heart plug is a little disturbing. And isn't yes. there a rape scene in the movie? I think there's a little bit of that stuff, and then you know there's the box. Oh, the boxes. That's the one scene the I box. have shown my kids. Yeah. <laughs> if this ever happens, you don't pull the... away. And then you got the, uh, they tried you got the, the and whatever it's called. You got they the finger tried needle. And died. Mm. Yeah. It's finger needle with it say. right over there. You pull your hand out. Bink, you get stuck with the. Uh, you get stuck with that. You can buy wasp, those on eBay. The wasp bite. Mm. My name is a killing he, word. He is Maudie, 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 Maudie. He is the Um. The sleeper has awakened. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's an awesome Welcome movie. Welcome to the Pound Sign Productivity. Pound Sign Productivity. Tell um, me of your homeworld, Usul. Now, now, did you see the other one, the remade one, the TV movie one? Yeah, I thought I saw that. It was, I mean, I guess that that was supposed to be much more accurate to the to the way it's the book was. Kind of like done. The Shining, where there was The Shining that the, the the Kubrick made that Stephen King didn't like, right? And then he was real involved with the guy from Wings making the other one. <laughs> the guy from Wings, the other guy from Wings. <laughs> now, my wife, my wife knows the first guy from Wings, yeah, because uh, the, the the first guy he's from uh, my wife's neck of the woods, and you'd see him around town in Providence. But the other guy. From from the wings he's the one in the shining that stephen king liked because apparently okay. it was more li- i i saw it and i didn't like it and i think it, it was more like the book which i did read yes. uh yes. back in the whatever 80s yeah yeah um but we you know i come from a time when uh we had video stores where you could go and rent a movie sure. but by and large you got what was on tv and then a little bit later, what people were able to get on their Betamax. Right. And like, that's what you got to watch. And so my friend, uh, the one whose mom had given me the haircut later on, he, oh God, he had a, he taped uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail mm-hmm. off of like HBO. Mm-hmm. We'd watch it, you know, constantly. And, but he also recorded, um, at some point we had the Secret Policeman's uh, Other Ball. And Sting does a really nice performance of, I think, Message in a Bottle in that. And uh, that's kind of when I when I re-imprinted on Sting. But that was all gone a couple years later. I had a bad haircut. I had to leave for college. <sighs> well, I remember my, my grandfather was my sort of gateway to seeing a lot of these movies because um, we couldn't afford HBO. He had HBO. And HBO was like $14 a month. Oh, it was a lot, right? Which today in today's money is like $2,000. $6,000. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he had, uh, he had a VCR that um, if you remember the – this is this sounds like we're really really from a, a completely different time period but there used to be in the number of heads that you had on the VCR determined the quality of the recording that it would be right you want like a four head well it? four was like that was minimum there okay. were six and they even made eight head VCRs and my grandfather was always he had been he was a scientist he worked for the um, for the U.S. government for the war he was a metallurgist he was like into technology and unlike today where everything is technology back then like there weren't a lot of advanced technology you could have in your house really so when an eight I think there was an eight maybe I'm crazy I feel mm-hmm. like you had an eight 
head VCR. It was at least six. I feel I'm going to go on record and say I think it was an eight head VCR. And the stuff that he would record looked so good. It was almost as good as watching your cable television straight up because most eight of the head, eight head looks like the most heads you can get pretty much. I think, I think it was an eight head. And so he two, would, four, six or eight head. Mm-hmm. And then like he would buy the expensive VCR tapes and he would tape this Ooh, stuff. Like nice ones and do them on, uh, on slow speed. Yeah. <laughs> and so you couldn't put, you couldn't put like four movies on one. It would be just the one movie. Mm-hmm. Like you were making a freaking statement. Like how many movies you put on there? Did you put in a, no, we no. only put cocoon. Nothing else. Nothing else. And so, like, I would borrow these, and I'd play them, and I think we probably had... it. You know, if the standard was a four-head VCR, we had, like, a two. If they didn't yeah. even... You know, if they, if it was available to, to buy less, we had that. Uh, but I would watch everything that way until eventually we were able to afford getting our own HBO. But, like, ev- I burned through those tapes. When I would give mm-hmm. them back to him, forget it. You weren't even playable. I would play it at some... Because every time you play a VCR tape, it ruins it a little bit. And it's like life. <laughs> That's right. You get out of bed. That's one mm-hmm. less time you're going to get out of bed. You're wearing, wearing those memories down, buddy. That's Still right. learning nub. That's right. Yeah, that was interesting because, I mean, it was really funny. Like, VCRs came out. Like, obviously, the first VCRs, you get somebody like uh, like Elvis, like, had, an, had a Sony early Betamax <laughs> right, in right. the 70s. Right. I mean, who knows? How, like, $20,000, something like that. And then VCRs in the late 70s, again, mostly Betamax was the upfront winner. Did you have be, a beta? You seem like the kind of person who would have had a Betamax and known the difference and like touted no, it. No, the, I think, you know, it had shaken out by the time I could afford a VCR. Yeah, but totally had for us. But it was, it was interesting because like by then VHS was kind of the winner. Um, and in terms of the format war, but also it was funny how like $200 just became the price for a VCR. Like it was $200. That's what a VCR cost. And like, you know, and I, it's, I think there's probably still phenomena like that today where even as products in, improve, the price kind of stays the same, like what you would expect. To, like, you know, there, was, there, there were not that many people who would want to go out and buy like an $800 VCR if you could just get one for 200 And then it got to the point where like one I had was broken and was actually the bench, the bench charge to even figure out what to do with it like would be half of the price of just getting a new VCR. <laughs> right. And that's how we got where we are today. And now Facebook has all your data and gives it to Steve Bannon. <laughs> that's right. Boy, it's gonna be that's gonna be interesting times. What an interesting week, Dan. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Did you watch that Channel Four uh, Britain uh, story on Cambridge Analytica? No, I have not seen that. Is that something I should check out? It's pretty good. There's like a 19 minute um, little sting where they basically got. Well, you can go see it for yourself. It's all over the place. But the one coming out hmm, the next half hour or so on Channel Four is going to be very, very interesting. But we're not here to talk about politics and data. And how Facebook is ruining you. Can I tell you something um, kind of on a tangent to that that's creeping yes. me out right today? So you've heard about these these bombs that are happening here in Austin. I didn't, right? I didn't want to bring it up. Okay. It's, well, I'll just – here's the one reason I'm going to bring it up uh, is that the, there was one that went you're, off – Just so people, listeners know, you live in the I live city in Austin, where this Texas. is happening. Yeah. And so the, the, the bomb that went off, there was one that apparently was being sent via FedEx uh, that was coming – to Austin via FedEx. Gra- to San Antonio. Right. And it made it to San Antonio. And I guess it was, that's like one of their hubs. And it was supposed to go from San Antonio to Austin to be delivered by the FedEx guy. My brother-in-law is the FedEx guy that was likely going to be delivering that package. Oh, come on. No, I'm totally serious. Oh, God. 
Like, how weird is that? Like, that was, I think that was his route or his buddy's route. I'm not sure which, but it, there is a very good likelihood that it would have been him delivering that. Isn't that insane? Isn't that insane? Yeah. No, it is. It absolutely is. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Um, it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I watched some of the press conference today with the Austin police official. And, yeah. I don't know. I mean, she didn't have that much to offer. She basically said, if you see a sp- something suspicious, call the police. And right. it's like, so what do you mean by suspicious? And really, should everybody call about everything suspicious? It just didn't feel very nutritional. Like they didn't really know what to say. And it's like, then on the other hand, yeah, I think you just, you end up giving these people the attention that they're craving. It's, yeah. But how, I, I mean, I don't, it, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know either. It's, and it's really frustrating because like on the one hand, you want to say, okay, like to whoever this is, like, what is it you want? They did that. Yeah. And then they don't, they don't answer. Yeah. And so then the next step is what, like, what can you do? Well, yeah, we, they're I, the thing they're saying today is we really want you to come forward. Yeah. They're going to okay. come forward. That's their whole MO is to come forward now. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Dracula. You got to invite him in. <laughs> Um, well, today, Dan, mm-hmm. we got, we you have, got, you did a thought experiment and I think it turned out great. Yeah. I mean, we, we get a lot of nice uh, email from folks, but I, I like, uh, so what we, what we did was we asked people on Twitter if there was anything that they would like us to talk about. And I think that's a particularly good format for that because people can chuck and jive and make their jokes, which are very, very funny <laughs> or, um, or they could actually ask something useful and in a very, um, you know, kind of pithy way. You only get so many characters with that. That's that's uh, that's something that we're going to do. Is we're going to answer three, four, five questions from listeners that I think were very good. You vetted these questions. Are you okay with these? I, I think they're great. You did uh, an excellent job of. Uh, um, before we do that, though, I wanted to talk about this article. And before we do that, do you want to tell me about something that you like? Sure, I would love to tell you about uh, about FreshBooks. FreshBooks. You've heard of them. I've heard of them. You guys I, know FreshBooks. Pretty pretty fun company. They're uh, I mean, no company is perfect. Mm, uh, wow, and these wow. these guys are ba- they're based in Canada, so you can't. I mean, starting out, you you know they're going to be pretty nice. You know they're they're friendly people. At least they're going to seem nice. They will seem nice, and that's yeah. all that counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are really really good at doing support, uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. FreshBooks, what they do is they make it very very easy for you to keep track of invoicing people. That's at the heart of what they do. They um. They're more than that. The, the FreshBooks service is a bit more than that. They're accounting software, and they're designed to work really, really well for people like us, people who are freelancers, small, medium, maybe even medium, medium-sized businesses. But they're a wonderful, wonderful service that just makes it easier for you to get paid. That's what it comes down to. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you want to get paid, and that, that's what they do. They make invoicing and tracking expenses and getting paid online really easy, and their goal is to reduce the time that it takes for you to get paid. They have over 10 million people using their service now. They know what they're doing uh, and they're going to save you a lot of time. And I've been using, I was trying to, before we started the show today, I was trying to think back to when I started using FreshBooks way, way, way before they were ever a sponsor. And I, I can't remember a time that I haven't been using the service and paying to use the service because it's great. I send out invoices all the time and the big question is, did the customer get the invoice and when are they going to pay it? And the flip side of that is you want to make it really easy for them to get the invoice, to refer back to it and to, to pay you. So FreshBooks makes it really easy for you to get paid because they allow you to have online payments. And especially if you're, if you're working with a company 
they have a corporate credit card. It's super easy. They don't need to do a PO. People want to do that more and more nowadays. Yeah. It's so much easier, easier than like a PO and the whole you know nonsense with a check. That's all, right. So. I mean, a lot of the time, the holdup in you getting paid is, oh, well, we've got to go through our whole accounting department. And everything. Now, nowadays, you can say, well, you don't have to it's do like that. It's like trying to elect a pope. It's like ridiculous. <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly what it's like. Yet? It's exactly what it's like. No disrespect. <laughs> but I said that they're nice and they they are so nice. They Usually in less than three rings, one of their support people will answer the phone if you have a question. And because they're Canadian, they're super helpful, really friendly. And uh, there's so much built into this. I, I just want you guys to go and check it out. I mean, obviously the invoicing, the notifications when your uh, your customer, your client gets uh, gets the invoice, the online payments, but there's so much more. There's a project center that they have. There's a thing that helps you track mobile expenses. Uh, they're, like I said, the great support. They've got automated late payment reminders, which is really useful. Uh, and you can learn about this by going to freshbooks.com, freshbooks.com slash back to work. And then enter the code back to work, all one word, in the how did you hear about us section. When you try this out, you're going to get unrestricted 30-day free trial. That means you get every feature that they have to offer no restrictions. It's not like you're getting a, like a dumbed down, scaled down version. You get the full, full Monty, freshbooks.com slash back to work, enter the code back to work when you sign up. And we appreciate their ongoing support. Great company, service that I love. Bok, Thanks, FreshBooks. Bok, Bok. I wanted to just talk about this article. Um, so the, um, <clears throat> the title of this article uh, has some swears in it that I'm going to try and pass over. I kind of wish it's such a good article. I almost wish it didn't have the swears, but if without the swears, I'm not sure I would have looked at it, but it ended right. up being a much more nutritional article than its headline would let me have led me to believe. Right. It's an article on quartz from a few days ago by Corinne, Corinne, uh, Pertil. Um, so forgive me. I'm going to try this. You might have to blit me at some point. The difference between a snafu, a poop show and a cluster fart. Okay. I like that. Okay, so that's not the actual words. Um, you know, and she goes into a little bit, I don't know, it's kind of weird. It sort of drifts a little at the beginning, but it's kind of like, oh, you've heard that term, you know, snafu, you mm-hmm. know, situation normal, all fouled up, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. But uh, it's all in the service of getting to what a cluster fart is. Cluster, let's say cluster fudge. Cluster fudge? I like what, fudge. That's, the, that's what Ralphie says. Fudge. And so I'm just going to read a little of this. The, little bit of this for a second. To appreciate what a cluster fudge is and understand how to avoid one, it's helpful, uh, first helpful to clarify some of the things a cluster fudge is not. Um, it's not a, a fudge up. You're going to, you're going to be challenged, I think, to get through. This is already hurting my brain so hard. A fudge up is just something all of us do every day, says this expert. Uh, I broke the egg I made for breakfast. Kind of a fudge up. Whereas cluster fudges are perfectly preventable. Fudge ups are an unavoidable feature of the human condition. I think that's a nice distinction. Like, oh man, I just screwed that up. Whereas like, it was, you know, it's, you know, um, it's just the kind of thing that happens. Like you, you, you make mistakes, right? That's, but a very isolated, like kind of per employee, per team member, like, oh, like I missed that. Like I was careless, but that, everybody knows that stuff happens. Then you get a snafu, um, s- situation normal, all fudged up. Uh, refers to the functionally messy state that describes many otherwise healthy companies and many of our personal lives. A snafu uh, work environment is usually manageable, whereas one that is foobar, which is fudged up beyond all repair, um, another military term probably isn't. When my students with little experience go to work at a famous company and it isn't quite as they dreamed, 
I do ask them if it is FUBAR or SNAFU and tell them that SNAFU <laughs> will describe most places that they work. So, I, no, okay, so I hope this isn't too opaque, but a SNAFU, I think we know what that means. Okay, let's go back to getting paid by a company. A lot of times, if you were supposed to get the deposit for this thing months ago, you'll find out that there was a SNAFU. It wasn't even a fudge up. It was a SNAFU. Like somewhere that some paperwork got me- messed up. Maybe there's more, you know, call volume at a call center than usual. But, right. But it's the kind of thing that you can kind of unravel, whereas FUBAR means it's like really, really, really gone. The next one she's distinguishing against is a poop show. No less an authority, authority than the Oxford English Dictionary describes a poop show as a situation or state of affairs characterized by chaos, confusion, or incompetence. <laughs> so a cluster fudge may come to possess all of those characteristics, but is more properly identified by the decisions that produced it rather than its outcome. Okay, so, so at the core of the cluster fudge is that there were decisions that were made that, that were bad or a series of, of bad decisions that led to that. I feel like a poop show – is a result <laughs> right whereas of, a cluster fudge <laughs> is like an un, almost unavoidable so, so people have given in to their worst impulses um we'll get to this in a minute because this is the really the core of the article is what a cluster fudge is but i think of a poop show as being more like oh man you were really not prepared for this you know maybe i well i'm just gonna say fire festival but i guess that's probably a cluster fudge but like a poop show is where you know think about times where like you've tried to straighten <laughs> straighten something out with a delivery yeah and it gets worse and worse and you have to keep repeating your information i think that as being a poop show now to get to the main feature the three main contributors to cluster fudges and the three things these people, Sutton and Rao, uh, and so Sutton and Rao, these, these, I guess, researchers, analyzed countless cases of scaling and expansion, both successful ones and those that ended in disaster. And reviewing the most spectacular failures, they identified three key factors that resulted in the kind of expensive, embarrassing, late-stage collapse as the hallmark of a cluster fudge. And those three things are illusion, impatience, and incompetence. I'm going to call them the three eyes. The three eyes. Yeah, you got to go to your third eye. So just to get to these quickly, illusion um, starts with the decision maker's belief. Oh, I've, <laughs> I feel like I've seen this a couple times. Yeah. Starts with the decision maker's belief that a goal is much easier to attain than it actually is. The expectation that two car, two car companies with different languages and different cultures would merge together flawlessly, like Daimler Chrysler thought. Remember uh, Time Warner? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, come on, guys. They're, they're media companies. I mean, they're all really the same thing. It's the like, same uh, thing. They work the same. It's a AOL, company. AOL, so different Time magazine. Could it be? Yeah, right. I mean, but you think about it. okay, AOL. They make the internet, right? You got Time magazine. You got the Warner Brothers movies. So really, hey, CNN is already kind of like AOL. But in many a <laughs> in many a post morta about that, what went wrong with that in the what late nineties? People looked at the fact that AOL had a. First of all, remember they just wanted to call it AOL at first. They were going to have, and then it became AOL Time Warner. But at first, they just wanted to call the entire umbrella of companies AOL. Like, that's yeah. aged well. Yeah. But, you know, AOL has an incredibly different culture than Time Magazine. Time Magazine has a very different culture from the people that are working at, at um, Warner Brothers, you know, entertainment stuff. CNN, different culture. And it felt like, you know, again, this is just in retrospect, but it felt like the best they came up with was that little, like, eighth of an inch bar across the top of every page across all of their properties right they had this big douche bar across the top with the logos of all the different companies and it's like hey guys look synergy but like the illusion there was that because this is all media it's all just in bits and bytes that we'll be able to slam all this stuff together and make a conglomerate out of it 
And you just, you see that happen so many times, but it happens for all of us, illusion. Just this idea that we have not really walked through for me as a retired project manager and large animal veterinarian, I, I'm somebody who has looked at a lot of this stuff from the pessimist point of view. And sometimes you feel a little bit like Cassandra, like you can see it coming, like, wow, the illusion here is that you have this idea in mind that this thing's going to be so much easier to do than it is. Mm-hmm. And you have not really walked through what's involved and you have not done risk mitigation. You have not done basic project management to figure out whether the thing that you have made the goal with the deadline and the budget actually makes any sense. So illusion. I feel like illusion is something, though, that um, it, a lot of people are guilty of. Any time that you you know you think of something, oh that that can't be that hard. It's not going to be that hard. It almost seems like you you have to take one side or the other. I see this so much in software development. I'm guilty of it too. Like you look at something, you're like, oh that's not going to be that hard, or you're like, whoa, whoa that's going to be impossible. That's going to take a long time, and. And I right. feel like it's almost, you almost never meet in the middle. It's all, and, and especially if you're working with other people, like, I'll say, oh, that should be easy. We should be able to do that. I'm like, a week. And that, like, oh, it's, a it's, week, it's, you're it's crazy. It's such a cluster of different cognitive biases, though, because the other example they give here, hey, by the way, happy quinceanera to the uh, Iraq war. 15 years ago th- today, I believe it was. Really? Uh, the Bush administration's estimate that the invasion and reconstruction of Iraq would take no more than a few months and $60 billion. Because, or, or like, what, what's another one like that? Um, there's, there's so many things where like because I can conjure up the idea of like what this thing is and it feels simple. Like you're describing it almost on a consumer level where mm-hmm. you would say, hey, I have this feature request. Can you do that? Uh, one, that one that I've mentioned before that I think will have a lot of people slap in their head is the idea of single sign-on. Single sign-on seems like such a simple project. So you say you go into a company, you go, well, more appropriately, I guess, an enterprise. But there's somewhere where you've got a whole bunch of different stuff. This could be HR, could be your healthcare benefits, um, it could be time tracking, whatever it is. But you say, we have this idea, it's really important that we get single sign-on, which means once you're signed into this one location, now you're authenticated on all these places and everything works together. And like to me, that's maybe a canonical example of illusion because the result feels so simple the implementation, you assume, must be fairly easy, which is, in fact, kind of the opposite of true. Right. Google getting to where they could have the confidence to have a single text box and a button to push. So many person hours of intelligence and programming went <laughs> that's into that's a great example. Box. Great example. Like that's you know the 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 simplicity of use belies a huge amount of work behind the scenes. But like with single sign-on, we mentioned this, it's been a while, but like I was, I project managed part of a single sign-on project for a big company one time. And it was really, really interesting because you had all these different groups getting together. And I'm going to anonymize this a little bit, but you you take, for example, let's say it's even an internal single sign-on. Maybe you want what we used to call an intranet. You want something where you've got- Oh, the intranet. Thank you for reminding me of that. I made a living building those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like, you know, back in the day, the internet was an idea of like, it's a a website that's just for people inside of the company other people can't get to, but it involves a lot of the administrative stuff inside of the company. And like I say, that could be, let's say, let's just take a few big ones. Uh, Things like um, tracking your hours. It could be looking up your health benefits. Mm -hmm. It could be booking a conference room. Um, It could be all those different things, but it's all the stuff that the public can't and shouldn't know about that's all taken care of and so wouldn't it be nice if you went to one page with your login information and then you were in all of those things but then like you think about what's involved in that like think about let's just look at the health stuff hipaa requirements who's allowed to know what information about whom in which situation uh hey should you stay logged in to the request a conference room place for as long as you're logged in to the health area 
Are there any, are there any limitations about that? What if, what kind of database work are we going to have to do in order to have this be any more than just a, a, a flimsy web page? Like when you say single sign on, you're really talking about a butt ton of left joints, right. a whole bunch of stuff's going to have to get smashed together in this big database. And who's going to do all that? It's not as simple as the, it's just a button thing. I'm just putting this up. I'm, I'm going on, but I think that's a big one. And again, go look up cognitive biases. We all have them. So if the first eye illusion, the second eye impatience, a misguided idea alone does not produce a cluster fudge. The idea also needs a champion determined to shove it along, usually over the objections of more knowledgeable underlings. Here they use the example of Google Glass. Um, but, you know, I think impatience is the uh, younger sister of illusion in some ways. Because, like, if you've got an illusion for how this project is going to go and it's not happening fast enough, you get mad. And you say, look, I can s- why is this taking so long? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A third eye incompetence. When errors of information and timing meet um, blatantly stupid decisions by people who should know better, disaster tends to ensue. Oh, this is I, – I'd never heard this. The Bear anecdote. Stearns thing? Yeah. Did you know this anecdote? No, I did not. Bear Stearns wasn't the sole cause of the global financial crisis, of course. But former CEO Jimmy Kane's decision to spend 10 days – of the 2007 subprime mortgage loan meltdown playing at a bridge tournament without phone or email access <laughs> contributed to the firm's collapse and to the worldwide disaster that followed. So those three eyes come together like, like pretty hard. Like you got old Ben Carson right now uh, throwing his wife under the bus for being the one who supposedly ordered that super expensive dining room table. Great management from the top down there. <laughs> Um, but that's how you get a cluster fudge, according to these people. Now, we get to the part I really, really love, because, of course, we bring in our old friend, Daniel Kahneman. Um, I love this. So, so, the, so the antidote to uh, cluster fudgery, uh, Sutton argues, is a willingness to confront the possibility of failure and disappointment built into every new venture and to plan accordingly. Let's pause on that for a minute. Doesn't that seem like kind of good advice? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like great advice. Now, I've been in places where that mode of thinking is considered counter-revolutionary. Like, you're being a karma suck. If you're being the person who's saying, whoa, 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 let's, let's, let's pump the brakes a little here and talk about like, what, our, what, our, what our contingency plan is. I have been in organizations and have frequently been unhired or not hired by organizations who didn't like the idea of having to think about risk mitigation or you know, what we do if this doesn't happen on time. I mean, have, haven't you had clients like that? Who are like, what do you mean this might not happen on time? Right. Or what do you mean this might not have all the features? Or what do you mean the budget might grow? Well, because, well, because people well, who guess are, what? There's a whole project before the project. There's I mean, a project people, before the I project of figuring out what the project is. The problem that, that people like that run into is that they've not done it before and they're put in charge or something. And and you know, like if you think about it like this, people will always try and relate it to something that they're familiar with. So like making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So they say, Well, we have bread, we've got a knife, we've got peanut butter. And we've got the jam. So what could go wrong? You know, we've even got a place to put I, this thing like, on. And just, just, just to put a little bit of, uh, of icing on that cake, because I know that I have bread, I have peanut butter, I have jelly, I have a knife, and I have an area to put it together. Right? I mean, for, for, for a single person, that is a very knowable and understandable thing, right? right. Okay. What happens if you get super possible or super popular? Like, what if you become super successful? You see this all the time on the Shark Tank. Like, what if it turns out that, like, you didn't have as much peanut butter as you thought? And the person who produces your jam uh, just got flooded. Right. Like, now what do you do? It's, it's like Marco likes to say, like, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Right. Like, how do you deal with that? And now you get into these mythical man month issues. Well, now, like, I'm really good at making this one peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I like. But what if I had to make 10,000 today? 
So what do I do? Do I stop making sandwiches while I go into a hiring uh, mode and then I go into a training mode and then I go into a, like figuring out who to keep among the people that some of the people are stealing my precious jam and I don't even know what to do about it. Like those, you get these scalability law of large numbers, things that happen that if you don't, if you aren't familiar with those kinds of weird kind of quantum problems, right. you wouldn't even know what to expect. Right. You don't even know that those problems are possible. Right. And so I, I had a toot about this particular article the other day where like, you know, I think this is a line I feel like I maybe first heard in Apollo 13 where the guy says failure is not an option. Right, right. And as we've said on here, failure is always an option. I think that that attitude, that's something somebody likes to say, like they're Mel Gibson running into battle, like failure is not an option. And it's like, oh my God, please God, let me never serve under a general who thinks failure is not an option because so many people are going to die. Like failure... <laughs> Failure is not only an option, it's the basic state of inertia. Why would anything ever go well? That doesn't make you a karma suck. That doesn't make you a pessimist. It makes you realistic. It makes you understand that unless all of this stuff has been thought through, has been provisioned, has been budgeted, has been scheduled, right? By people who've done this before, like, who are you to think that anything could ever succeed? It's amazing that anything ever succeeds. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. It's not a foregone conclusion that it would, but you know, I, but I think because people have to, when they're in something that they don't really understand or that they haven't done before, it's natural for someone to try to relate it to something that they've done in the past. So they say, well, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that's knowable right. and doable. It, it, if we take the same approach to this other incredibly complicated technology thing with lots of moving pieces or a war in another country, like we'll just do these things. What could go wrong? Yeah, they'll, they'll welcome us with parades and flowers. That's right. Well, and not only am I real good at peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I know to a certainty that in my eight years of management, I have from time to time also managed other people who are good at making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches right. for themselves. Right. And it's like, mm, that's not really, that's not really an, an analogous like a trampoline you want to jump on. Now, here's where we get to my favorite paragraph because it gets to my main man, Daniel Kahneman. Um, so Sutton uh, cites a favored, this is a slightly confusing sentence. Sutton cites a favored decision-making tactic of the Nobel Prize-winning economist Daniel Kahneman, who in turn credits it to psychologist Gary Klein. Before a big decision, teams should undertake what Kahneman calls a pre-mortem, not a post-mortem, a pre-mortem. <laughs> it's not dead yet, but when it is, why will it have died? Split the group in two. One group is assigned to imagine a future in which the project is an unmitigated success. The other is to envision its worst-case scenario. Each group then writes a detailed story of the project's success or failure, outlining the steps and decisions that led to each outcome. Imagining failure and thinking backwards to its causes helps groups identify the strengths and weaknesses of their current plans and adjust accordingly. And I, I think... In my case, like I'm always – this is kind of a, a dumb thing I say, but like I think sometimes um, it's interesting to have a conversation. It's interesting in this case to break this down into groups. But I also think it's important to watch the eyes of all of the managers and stakeholders in the room because when that one group comes up with all the ways that this coat goes wrong, watch how many of them might roll their eyes mm -hmm. or get kind of a <clears throat> look like this. Feel that sense of pushback against the idea that this could go anything but flawlessly. Like, it's no fun to work for somebody who's negative, but it can be very life-saving to work for somebody who does protect you and the team and the project and the product by making sure that careful steps are taken to think about what happens if this doesn't go flawlessly. Final paragraph, quoting uh, Sutton, people make better decisions when they look into the future and they imagine that they have already failed and then tell a story about what happened. 
with better planning, it won't be a story that has to be bleeped out. I thought that was a good article. <laughs> it's a good one. I, how did you find this? Just stumbled across it? or I don't know. I, I don't know. I probably saw it on Twitter. I don't know. I feel like some of these terms in, in there are snafu and, you know, foobar. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not really in our regular kind of language, both, like military terms. You know, I was watching. I was showing my, my one of the things I like to do is force my children to watch uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons uh, from when when we were kids. And there's the one with uh, where Bugs Bunny is Super Rabbit. You remember that one? Uh, no, the, I don't. The scientist uh, has made a carrot or a set of carrots for Bugs Bunny to eat that when he eats one, he gets superpowers. Essentially, he's Superman. He can fly and he's quite strong and all that stuff. But when the power of the carrot runs out, he will. <laughs> he usually, while he's in flight, there will be that sort of engine sputtering sound and he will have to quickly oh, right. eat another... <laughs> right. And he'll have to eat another carrot to regain the power. And... What's interesting is he's he's there and and he winds up going to Texas because in Texas there's some uh, cowboy who he and his horse are sort of out to get rid of all the rabbits. So he goes there to give them what for. And at the end, of course, he uh, he's he's flying. He goes for his uh, his carrot to give him his resume his power so he can continue to fly. And he carries the carrots in a little cigarette metal cigarette case. (laughs) <laughs> that he puts in his uh, where his you know right. jacket pocket would be in his suit, and manages to spill all of them. So he falls to the ground, and as they're spilled, the Texan and his horse both eat the carrots, and now they are imbued with the superhuman powers and the same sort of Superman outfit that he has. And uh, it seems like he's about to sort of fight them, and then he 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 says, "Wait a minute, this is a job for a real hero." And he runs into the telephone booth, which is there in the middle of the Texas desert as it's drawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, he comes out and he's dressed as a military man. And he is, uh, you know, it, uh, the um, the Shores of Tripoli song. What's the name of that one? Uh, in the halls of Yeah, Montez. that one. And the, he, Marine, the Marine hymn. Right. And he's, he, he walks uh, out and you see there's a little sign. And the sign says, uh, to Tokyo and Berlin. And he walks off in that direction as a true hero, member of the U.S. military. And it, whenever I hear terms like foobar or snafu or things like that, I had to explain that to my kids, like what, what that meant and what he meant by you know, a real hero and what he was going to do. And it's, it's really interesting to me because of how absolutely that, that culture and that mindset permeated everything that we were doing down to the to the cartoons that were being made at that time. And so much of that culture and also the, you know, the, um, the terminology and things like, I think everybody back then would have known what foobar or snafu meant. And I'm, you know, I feel like those are terms that there, I don't hear them as much. So I I like the article for that reason too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I'm kind of glad we don't have the draft, I guess in some ways, I don't know. I don't have a super strong opinion. I'm glad I didn't have to go in the army, but like there was a time when like pretty much, you know, every able bodied man had been in the army and, or, or, you know, in the service in some form or other. And that brought that to the whole American landscape is that whole families now had people that were, you know, steeped in that culture. The other, one last thing about this and kind of to your point, um, I, I, I said something a couple of people liked recently, um, 
when we were talking about I forget if it was here, it might have been on Dubai Friday, but I was talking about that idea of like that's a big theme of well, you know, what are the things that are unnecessarily difficult about my job that I can ameliorate or improve or just get rid of. They're just a dumb thing that's making my job hard versus have you identified which parts are necessarily difficult because that's what the job is, which on the face of it seems like a simple question. I think it's not. I think as you, as you get older, as you mature, as you get more experience, you get more and more of a taste because, okay, like let's look at one example. One example is you get your first job and you hate your boss. You think he's a dick. Right. And you go, oh God, this is the worst. Now, you might work there a little longer. That guy quits or gets transferred and you go, oh, I guess that was just a problem I have this one time with this person that I didn't get along with. But Galaxy Brain tells you, no, 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 difficult people are part of the job. And sometimes you're the difficult person <laughs> is the funny part. <laughs> right. So as you mature, you know, you go through the Galaxy Brain sort of levels in that case. But you know, with any kind of job we have, I think that's – I think you don't need to always ask yourself this. But when, you're, when you feel like you're up against it, it is useful and important to look at it and say, okay, what am I looking at this clearly? What about this is necessarily difficult? And what about this is not necessarily difficult? And then what can I, how do I proceed? That's certainly got to be a huge part of running a military operation. The way I feel that relates to this article though, and in some ways weirdly relates to parenthood or just any kind of mentorship is encouraging people to understand like there's the base level stuff like values or beliefs or you know any of that kind of like important stuff but like as you move up that stack you get more and more into like is this the catastrophe that it feels like and is this the kind of catastrophe that it feels mm-hmm. like like i'm sad today will i always feel sad I'm having problems with my boss today. Will I always have problems? I've had problems with my boss for the last month. Will I always have problems with my boss? Well, okay, let's go back to first principles. What about this is difficult because it has to be? What about it is difficult because it doesn't have to be? And then how do I make decisions based on that? And when you're doing project planning or you're doing post-morta or you're doing anything that involves like ways to improve a process or a project, I think, I think that it is very valuable to look at that stuff, to look at like what is a necessarily big rock that couldn't have been avoided and what was a bunch of stuff we chose to look past because we just weren't looking. And when it comes to stuff like your emotions or your your personal decision making, like look at – go back to your biases. Go back to all the, that decision making. Play back through it because not all problems are the same size, right? And they're, they're not all intractable. They're not all avoidable. They're all different and for different reasons. And I think that's where when you look at hiring somebody, for example, who's got a lot of experience in this giant project, that's the kind of person that's worked with solving and not solving that problem so many times over 20 years that they have a pretty good radar for knowing, is it in this pile or is it in that pile? Is this like a big thing we need to worry about? Is this a little thing we need to worry about? Is this something that seems like a big problem that's really not? And this tiny little pebble over here, could that be the one thing that we end up tripping on that makes mm-hmm. us go ass over teacup? That's expertise. <laughs> I like that. Whew. Had a second coffee. It's paying off. It's paying off in space. We've got to answer some of these questions. All right, let's um, do it. Do you want to tell me about one more thing that you like? Yeah, we I'll, might have to break this into the into next week's episode. Yeah, we might We might have to we push have to it out a whole week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would like to thank Squarespace. Squarespace, bear squares. I was just, you know, I was just looking at a Squarespace website uh, before the show started. My buddy, um, he, I, I do a show with him called Unwound, where we geek out about watches. Mm-hmm. He runs his whole business off of Squarespace, and he, what he he does is he takes these, oh, he, he scours eBay and sites in Japan and things like that, and finds these old vintage watches 
and he restores them and repairs them and he's a watchsmith and this is this is how he makes a living and so once he gets the watch in he'll he'll fix it up make it perfect and then he'll sell it on the website and this is a hundred percent of his income is through this and it's all all happens because of squarespace uh, that's just one thing you can do with squarespace sell things I, I mean obviously you can make just a regular old website or a blog but it's so good at helping you showcase your work whatever that is and that's really when i think about squarespace i think of of that as kind of their primary goal is helping take the thing that you do that's cool and help you share it with the world and and do this in a way that's really easy do this in a way that's relatively straightforward i mean you can get so much done with a squarespace website without doing any html without doing any css why let that be the learning curve for you? Why have to invest tons of time and potentially money into making a website when that's not the thing that you do or the thing that you're good at? Squarespace can be good at that for you, and it lets you get back to the thing that you're good at and that you like to do. Because very few of us want to go and build a website. We want What we want is to get that thing that we made or that we're doing out into the world, and they just make it so easy to do that customizing can I a suggestion yeah i would love to hear it well you know I, I i like to bring this up periodically that even if you're a real web jockey um think about the people in your life that could benefit from squarespace and i'll give you an example one time at my kids preschool i don't know how this happened i always begged to be put on the most menial tasks because i didn't want to be anywhere near the office i didn't want to somehow i got on the it committee mm. and we had to go through this whole thing and like you would not believe what we had to go through so it was it was basically let's talk about foobars Basically, everything that went wrong, that could go wrong, had gone wrong. So the relationship with the person who had made the previous website for the school had soured. We had to try and beg for the keys to the shared account mm. to get in so that we could get all our precious content out. And then there's all this like thinking about, okay, wh- what should we do? How about this? How about you raise your hand and say, look, I'm going to pay for one year of Squarespace Nobody's going to have to worry about this. I will go and manually grab the junk off our old public website, put it, update it, put it in here. And now you've made something that anybody on that team can go in and deal with. You're not going to spend all your time having to go through MySQL databases. You're not going to have to spend all your time trying to find like, you know, uh, how to get into this shell account. Just go make this beautiful website that anybody, you know, I'm not trying to say like people that aren't, aren't techies they're not smart or something but like just normal people like normal people could maintain this website right and that is a sea change from 10 or 15 years ago you could do that for somebody in your life with squarespace squarespace.com is the place to go and uh if you want to give us credit for sending you over there and you want to save 10 percent off your first purchase use the code it's your show all one word it's your show and you will get just that 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or a domain because they're a domain name registration place too you mm-hmm. might want a new domain when you're getting a new website, or you might just want a domain. You maybe don't even want a website right now. That's fine. Next time you want to get a domain name, go there. Use the code It's Your Show, and you'll get 10% off your, uh, your purchase there. So thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. Thanks, Squarespace. Buck, buck. Well, my coffee made me talk longer than I expected. Why don't we do two of these, and then All we'll right. pick up the rest in, uh, in next week's episode. All righty. Does that work for you? That's perfect. Did you have one of these you particularly liked, or should I pick uh, one? You, you pick. You pick. And we didn't do your FU. What's my FU? 
Oh, that's okay. That's okay. all, right. all right. I just want to say thanks for people to come for coming to the meetup. It was really nice. Yeah, how, was it a nice turnout? Friendly. It people? was nice. It was some good people there. I got. I met some people from the internet. I met. Uh, I met uh, Nerd.is. I met uh, you know a Dan from the internet, and I met. Uh, I met uh, uh, Jared. You know a Rupert guy from the internet. I met him. I met a bunch of nice people. It was really cool. Couple uh, pals of mine who work on the Google Photos uh, project. I got to tell them how much I like their Google Photos project. I have a lot nice. to say about Google Photos. Hmm, hopefully good. Oh, very, very good. Very, very good. Yeah, it's very, very good. It's so good. It's um, hmm, yeah. Oh, okay. You know what? Put a pin in that. We yeah, we'll talk, talk about, about it next Make, uh, talk, next week's episode. Next week. How about listener Alex? Alex, on cautious workplace enthusiasm. This, this was a tweet, and Alex says, At work, how can I walk the line of being willing to work on most any task without becoming the garbage disposal for all the worst tasks? That's a really good question. Right, because if you, if, if you want to be helpful, especially this is super important, I would think, it, when you're early in a, in a company, you're still in your first few months even, maybe your first year where you want to be the person who's like supportive of the team and you want to be involved. And if someone asks you for help, you don't want to be the person who's like, no, nope, not my job. You want to say, yes, I would love to help. It's, it's, um, I, again, I don't have much recent work experience cause I don't really work. But, um, at the time when I did have a job, um, I would say it is very valuable, especially if you're like you say, if you're young or new to an organization, uh, it does not hurt at all to get a reputation as somebody who will enthusiastically make problems go away <laughs> is one way that I would put it. So, I mean, in this case, Alex, I think it's just understandably putting it kind of like from their own point of view, but put it another way, like maybe put differently. How do you get a reputation as somebody that you would want to give something important and interesting to, because you make problems go away. Right. And that, I think that really is, I mean, I've, I've not, I've never been a good manager in the times I've briefly been a manager, but I, I've gotten the feeling that that's what management types are looking for is someone reliable who makes their problems go away. Right. Don't you think? Yes. I mean, yes, yeah, show up in time and don't like fart at your desk, but like the, the big test is going to be like, are who do you come to mind? Um, you know, they're not going to be thinking about it in terms of like, is this fun? Will Alex enjoy this? They're going to think of it in terms of, well, here's a little rock I need to move. Like, do I get, who do I give this to? But, um, so, I mean, in some ways I think the way Alex is phrasing this becomes important because what is it, have there been things, and I, I understand, but this is part of why Twitter is good and bad. It's short, but we don't know the full case. Has Alex had the experience of getting dumb stuff foisted upon him or her for being too open and enthusiastic. I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't know either. I think it's a good question because I, I mean, what it really comes down to is, I, and, and, and like it's like what you said, we don't know if this is happening or if this is just something they're worried about happening. Um, I, I always like the idea of, of people who just, Honestly, if you if you take a defensive posture when somebody asks you something, it well it can make you seem defensive, right? It can make you seem mm-hmm. uh, unwilling to help. But if you're like it, you know, if you say you know, I I'm so sorry, I can't do that. I I would love to be able to help, but I I I've got too much on my plate right now. Um, for the things that that w- you would put in the category of being a garbage disposal for the worst tasks. I mean, everybody's going to have crappy tasks they don't want to do. Like that's part of 
part of everybody's job, I would think. And unless you're like a CEO of a billion dollar company, then maybe there's less of that. But in a regular in a regular person's job, there's a big percentage of stuff that you're supposed to do that you don't really like to do. Right. And I almost feel like the the sub question is how do I determine which things are supposed to be my job and which things aren't supposed to be my job? You know, and I think that gets easier as the company you're in gets it gets bigger. You know, like I remember when I, I remember when I was interviewing when I was first getting into doing like system administration and IT stuff. And I found that like in the smaller companies that I was interviewing with, it's like, oh, you know, you're going to do everything from racking up the servers and provisioning the internet to plugging in mice for people when their mouse stops working. Like you're going to do everything and upgrading RAM in the machines, like everything in between. And then when I was interviewing at the bigger companies, it's like, no, 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 no. You're only going to be responsible for the SunOS 413 machines yeah, like you're, you're not for allowed to this plug a mouse department. In. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And if you want to plug a mouse in, I don't. you got to call there, the mouse guy. Right. There's a mouse guy <laughs> in the IT department who will give you a sanctioned mouse and he will take care of plugging it in. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I feel like without knowing more about what's going on in, in with this person in the company, we can't really answer it. But I, I do love the... The phrasing of the question and the, and the intent of the question. I do, I do too. And I think one thing I would unpack out of this, this is not a reflection on li- uh, listener Alex, but I think there's sometimes a false dichotomy at play. Um, how can I put this? I, I think it's beneficial, you know, in, in, in the absence of um, evidence to the contrary, I think it's beneficial to be um, uh, a go-getter, not a go-getter. What's the word I'm looking for? To be ambitious, to be enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. But in this case, like, well, rather than thinking about it from your own point of view and like, how do I get a good project and not get abused? Why don't you, to the extent possible, first of all, get real good at efficiently doing your work in the way that your boss or manager likes. That sounds, I hate to put it that way, but that's really true. Um, they're not there to make you happy. They're there to get stuff done and make their boss happy. So on the one hand, be develop a really good work ethic about like doing learning what it is that matters about this to your boss. Like if you write a really flawless report that has three typos on the front page and they're that that type of person, that flips the bozo bit. That's maybe an obvious example. I guess what I'd say in the big picture of what to move toward is finding things to take care of before that person realized it was a problem. And don't make a big show of it, but like make it so that they, they start to notice that you know enough about your job and their job that you're taking care of stuff before it becomes a problem or for, before it becomes a bigger problem. And not to be a karma suck and not to go me, 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 but like if you start doing that for people, I, can, I mean, I'd like, I guess a really obvious example would be a personal assistant. Nobody wants a personal assistant. And I'm right. not talking about like somebody who gives you massages. I'm talking about like somebody who like <laughs> takes care of your calendar and your mail and stuff like what, that. Do, do personal assistants do massages? I don't know. But, but, but what I'm saying is like you would not want to have a personal assistant that was not able to get with your style of work. If they didn't understand how the company worked, they didn't understand how you work. If you had to constantly – tell them everything that needed to be done and how it needed to be done for five years, that's not really an assistant. Now you got a pet. Like, that's not fun. And But I mean, that's think about, like, if you were to become that kind of person at your job, are there the kinds of things that, and I'm not saying go write a big report about how you should get the Henderson Project. It could be as simple as make that pot of coffee when the first one's gone. Or be the person who cleans up after a party. Like, these are might sound silly, but I think this stuff matters. I think it would not hurt for you to become a good human being who gets noticed for taking care of problems 
before they're acknowledged or before you're asked. And then if you develop a reputation in that way, you're in, now you are in a position to say, I don't know, I don't know what this person's job is, but you're in a position to say like, hey, you know, I've been doing a lot of stuff. Um, my sales stuff has been pretty good. I've been helping other people out. I'm here on time. My, my, um, my numbers are good. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to start working more with the marketing team. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where you'd like to move. Maybe there's some there's like a like kind of a a pivot there for you. But maybe you could take on some extra work for the same pay. In that case, that would make you look good to the sales department and the marketing department. Again, it's hard to say in the generic. But now, now, now to go to the other side of this, like how do you avoid becoming the as you say garbage disposal? Ugh, I don't know. Why are you the garbage disposal? Is it because you're a pushover or because you're good at what you do? Is an important distinction. You don't want to be a pushover. Like you, you don't want to be the one person who always has to work on Christmas and do the scut work. No, you definitely don't want that. You want to be respected. But then the question becomes, well, if you're lacking respect, how do you develop respect? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think there's there's a million ways to go at that. Um, right. And I mean, is this something that's coming from past experience of, of doing this? Or is this something that, you know what I mean? Like, does, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think sometimes it's, I, I mean... I remember a friend of mine... Um, he uh, he was a very very smart software developer, and I remember when he first started at the company that I was working for. Um, they, we were in some kind of a meeting where the boss sort of made an offhand remark, like, "You know, we, it would be cool if like we had our logo like rotating in three D at the top of this page." You know, like just like a little like funny aside. He spent like literally all night in the office. Uh, so that the next morning he could deliver and he was not a graphic designer or anything like he wasn't like a computer animator dude he like taught himself how to do this got software to do it and made like a rotating logo and put it up at the top of the thing and the boss is like oh yeah pretty good cool um you know and i knew the boss and she like she would say stuff like that all the time but he took it quite literally and because it was like his first week you know he wanted to make a really good impression and he wanted to you know, make a statement by saying like, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it kind of backfired on him because subsequently, like he was like the guy that would have to do that stuff now. Like that was him now, <laughs> right? you know, like that right. was expected. Like, well, he can do that. He'll do whatever you need him to do. I mean, I hate to put it in these terms, but you know, I mean, yes, we're all special snowflakes, but ultimately we're all resources. We're all resources inside the company. And, and to, to appear valuable to people inside the company, you need to be a resource who produces more value, um, than they receive. That's capitalism. Right. In some ways. Right. I mean, I mean, file a bug, but, but in that, in that case, you know, I think if you start thinking of yourself that way, not not that that has to cut into your self-esteem, but just because that really is the realistic thing. If you are more productive, if you do more, if you're less effing annoying than your coworkers, you'll do well, like by and large, unless somebody's having an affair, like you're going to tend to do really well. So how do you get to that point? Well, I don't think it has to be anathema to go to your boss for clarification. Like if it is a, a time or resource intensive project, for example, I think it can be useful. Is you know if somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, look, here is here's a here's a kind of glitch that we're facing right here. To do this really really well would take this long in this budget. 
I know you don't want it to take that long and spend that budget. Can we figure out like where the biggest bang for the buck is, where you would like me to be spending, focusing the most attention? I think that that can be very useful. You don't want to do it too much because they hire you to get stuff done, not, not ask a million questions probably. But in that case, it could be something where if you feel like you're, you've become the garbage disposal, um, then I think it, there can be a point when you and go and say like, well, you could propose something that might make this a more effective project. Or you might you know, uh, want to come up with a way that it could be done – more efficiently, but um, I don't know. But that wasn't very useful, was it? No, very useful. The most, the most useful. You know, stay positive. Yeah, and, and enthusiasm benefits everybody. You don't have to be, you know, a fool about it. But like being enthusiastic. Right? About can doing you be? Work, can you be enthusiastic and not actually do any work? A lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah, it's called middle management. Am I right? Yeah, but seriously, maybe there's a way for them to for Alex to be like just enthusiastic about stuff and encouraging and not take on any additional work at all. But if you do it really well, it'll seem like you've done something. I like the guy at uh, Elaine's office who keeps sidling up next to her. Yeah. Credit. Yeah. He doesn't even, Alex doesn't even need to take the credit. Just be like really encouraging. Be the person that, uh, that everybody likes and that, uh, whenever they come away from talking to that person, they feel energized. Thanks Elaine. Yeah. You're such a super lady. (laughs) You want to do one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Why not? No, I say no. Let's not do it. No, save it. You know what? You're right. Save it. Save it. We'll be back on uh, Tuesday, March 27th for episode 369 of the Back to Work program. Nine times. When we will be cutting more cluster fudges and showing more poop shows. Yes. Snaffing the foos. That's right. All right. You want to button this up? Let's do it. Okay, I love you. Love you too, Merlin, man.